the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Welcome, Glenn. Another episode with another guest. I'm excited to get into this one, but uh, a couple of things to take care of first. First, I want to say a big thank you to Katie, uh, our newest patriot, uh, our newest patron on patreon.com. She could be a patriot. <laughs> and just you know, big thanks to her and all of our contributors uh, that that uh, help us you know with the show. Our, as we're getting things set up tonight, uh, our, our guest commented on our nice microphone setup, which would not have been possible without all you guys. So thank you very much. Indeed. Yeah, thank you, everybody. All right, so the 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 uh, anagram for tonight, and remember, this is a little tougher one, but remember, theme of the show. So you know, use that as you're working through it. If if you decide to work through it, uh, and that would be filmmaker orator. Yeah, Whoa. long one. It's filmmaker, you know, F I L double M A K E R orator O R A T O R. And um, hopefully Glenn doesn't get too distracted working on that where we can still talk to the guest. <laughs> but okay. uh, that we'll, we'll come back to that at the end of the show. So, uh, Glenn, any, um, uh, anything else to cover here in the beginning before we move on to the, the main topic? No, I, uh, I, I think we can probably catch up on some other stuff a little bit sure. later and uh, kind of fill in some of the, the little bits of news, but I'm excited to, to talk to our guest. I, I, we've hinted at, a, uh, at this for a while that we've wanted to bring in some guests from other disciplines, broaden the double loop podcast beyond just fingerprints. And, uh, you know, we have a mutual friend and super fan of the, the show who takes care of all of our, uh, our Twitter and uh, other social media stuff uh, by, by the name of Becca, super fan Becca. And she had been telling us about a firearms examiner, a legendary firearms <laughs> examiner uh, from uh, Oakland Police Department that she had worked with and got us kind of set up and uh, invite, invited this examiner to one of our happy hours that we still do on Discord on Wednesdays. And uh, it was really refreshing a few weeks back to have a someone outside the discipline join up and want to talk all things error rates and forensics and, you know, kind of share their experiences from a different discipline. So uh, we were very lucky to be able to get a hold of that person and uh, bring them on as a guest for. Yeah, so today. for today only uh, just temporarily renaming the show, the double barrel podcast. Mm, nice, Eric. <laughs> So, uh, Todd, uh, you know, welcome to the show, and uh, please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Todd Weller, and as you said, I've, I'm uh, my primary discipline nowadays is firearm and toolmark examination. I've been a forensic scientist since 2000, so gosh, it kind of pains me to say it. For 21 years now, I've been uh, in forensic science, and most of that career was at the Oakland Police Department Criminal Sticks Laboratory in California. And for the past four plus years, I've been in private practice with my own company, Weller uh, Forensics. Fantastic. You're living the dream here. So uh, one question we, we, we typically start out with, uh, with guests, especially you know, new ones to the show, is uh, how did you end up falling into uh, forensics and instead of our usual question of fingerprints, uh, specifically firearms tool marks? How, what was the it's kind of short version of the story that, that, uh, that led you to that uh, path? Sure. Well, I, I think it all started 
in high school, I had a fantastic biology teacher who did a DNA fingerprinting lab where we actually, she used different restriction enzymes to create different DNA bands and basically set up a crime scene. And we got these DNA bands, random in gels, and we could compare the DNA bands to, to do a bit kind of DNA analysis. And that kind of, I think, planted the you seed. You did general electrophoresis uh, in high school? This is like yeah. so, mid-90s? <laughs> I'm just trying to do the math here. Yeah. It, um, early, mid to early 90s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like 92, 93. Is that one of those fancy Bay Area high schools that we see <laughs> on television? <laughs> well, not if you went there, it wasn't too, too fancy. But what the cool thing was, because we I we are in the Bay Area and uh, we're there's a lot of biotech, the biotech companies were providing uh-huh. kind of basic wow. you know pipettes and tips and stuff to the local high schools. And so we just happened to have this technology and the biology teacher kind of ran with it, you know. So that that's what planted the seed. It was it was a really cool um, experiment. So Miss Black, if you ever hear this, thank you very much. <laughs> that is fantastic. So from there from there I went to, to college. I knew um, I wanted to study biology, so I, I majored in biochemistry at, at um, college, kind of with a, a path on med school. Figured out no college med school is not for me. Started looking into kind of research science. I worked in a professor's lab lab with fruit flies. I did an internship at a biotechnology company and realized research science was not also for me. And that little <laughs> spark of forensic science was kind of in, in the back of my head. And then I actually got serious about it. I started looking into it and I got really excited about it. This is the first career path that I actually realized like, wow, this is what it feels excited to be, what it feels like to be excited yeah. about a career. And from there, I, I kind of took off. Yeah, it's, it's, how, it's I guess it's kind of like how you know. It's like humming a tune and suddenly it resonates and, and you feel like you're you're harmonizing with it and it just feels right. You know this is the right path. I, I do love when that comes together. I've never had an experience of humming a tune and actually being in harmony. So I can't, oh. <laughs> can't relate with that. <laughs> but uh, from there, so I uh, happened into uh, the Oakland police department crime laboratory. They just, I, I, I was literally cold calling crime labs asking to be an intern and Oakland took me in. So I was, you know, washed dishes and we did everything for free. And six months later they, they hired me and I started my career in forensic science, actually in drug chemistry. Mm, so okay. um, went to drug chemistry. Actually, while I was there, I maintained my profici- proficiency in drugs uh, all 16 plus years that I was there. It was a small enough laboratory that occasionally they'd have to kind of pull, call me in from the bullpen and help out. So I, I would go in there throughout my career. And I also spent four years doing casework in the forensic biology section. And then uh, around 2008, they were short in the fireman tool mark section. And so I kind of started over and went into that, that section, which is really kind of where I wanted to end up at but having, being able to see all the different sections, fireman tool marks just kind of had a, a calling for me. Yeah. And what I like about this is it's such old school, California criminalist. You've got, you've got it all there. You've got the chemistry background, the biology and the, you know, the pattern old school criminalistics. That's really cool. That's a great background. And I'm jealous that you're so multifaceted <laughs> and diverse in all those disciplines. That's, that's great. Yeah. I might be one of the last, I think to do that, you know, I, California does have that tradition um, of you would kind of cut your teeth in either a blood 
blood tox or drug chemistry, solid dose. And then after a couple of years, when opening move up, move, move, you'd move into something else. But I, I think I was on the very kind of tail end of that as forensic biology kind of took off in the early 2000s. And there was this huge expanse of DNA sections. Labs just started hiring directly into the forensic biology sections. And um, as a result, that tradition kind of has died off. Right. So it's one of the last kind of um, generalists maybe to, to be trained. Um, I, I don't think we see that very much anymore in our profession, unfortunately. I, I think it's really served me well. I, I, I 100% agree. I, I understand why DNA labs have had to specialize because now we, you know, each section is so siloed. You need these people with these backgrounds in, you know, molecular biology and very specific, you know, education, pop gen statistics and all that. So they've ha- they've had to specialize, but as you say, it really is a disservice because once you have this experience in different disciplines, you realize how similar the disciplines are. I, I, I know that I, when I started, I used to think DNA and fingerprints were nothing alike. These were worlds <laughs> apart. But yet really when it comes down to it, there are quite a, a lot of similarities in some of the kinds of interpretation and whether or not you consider something to be artifact or quote unquote distortion or keep it in, if you will, versus excluding it. There's a lot of the same kinds of decision-making mechanics that I, I wish more forensic scientists realized. There's more similarities and overlap between the disciplines than most would appear. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that perspective. Actually, Oakland, where I used to work, criminalists, you know, the normal forensic scientist they would also do latent print comparisons. That was right. one of the places where people would, would start. Um, subsequently, they now have a separate job category of latent print examiner, but that was, fingerprints was considered one of the, uh, I don't want to say equal, I don't know exactly the right way, but it was it was a, a position in the laboratory that a criminalist could be assigned, um, you know, and it was viewed as, you know, this is another place where you can spend part of your career is doing latent print comparisons. And I, yeah. I think it's totally appropriate because there's so much similarity between Everything one of the do. the uh, situations I've heard about a few years ago now, so no no knowledge of it still continuing, but I think it was Florida, maybe FDLE, would have people start off in the DNA database unit where they would have to do stuff with DNA and with fingerprints. Uh, so they kind of – more like 10 print stuff, but still they would kind of come up with both of those knowledge sets and then basically graduate up depending on where they showed strength, either into the biology or the latent unit. And I thought thought it was a kind of a a good path to evaluate where people are strengths are instead of just randomly dropping them into a unit, uh, but also, you know, getting a little bit of that broader perspective. And how do you like working for yourself? Uh, As Eric said, living, living the dream. How, uh, how has that gone? Well, I've really enjoyed it. I do miss, being in the laboratory and, and having uh, coworkers as well, especially people like Becca, you know, who are wonderful to work with. But um, being on my own, it's fun in that I get to work more with some of the more big picture stuff with my profession. And one thing I'm very interested in also is research mm-hmm. and uh, new technology. And when you're doing bench level type work and you're scribing case numbers and your initials on hundreds of items of evidence, it's tougher to, um, move aside and also work on the research. So, so making that transition allows me to do that as well. 
Yeah, that is nice. Plus, you don't have to ask permission <laughs> of anyone to join any projects, which uh, towards the end of my career, that became such an issue with just having to ask permission to do anything because, you know, you worked for the agency and, you know, they would they would decide if this was a project that they wanted to be involved in or not. And it was just nice being able to go private as well and just take on whatever kind of case I wanted to get involved in any kind of research project. It's very, it's such a wonderful sense of freedom to focus on things that are meaningful to you as, as a forensic scientist. Yeah, absolutely. And and, another aspect of our profession, you know, we serve the justice system. Um, I, I always took the perspective when I was working in the crime lab that I was there, of course, to just provide a voice for the evidence. But I would always tell people if we're giving a tour, you said, you know, often on TV, you, you see when a forensic scientist will provide evidence that's used in a prosecution. But I took just as much, much pleasure if I could tell the police officer, this is not the correct firearm or no, that bloodstain doesn't match the way you think it is. Or this, this white powder is negative for anything. Um, because, you know, I'm helping get to what is ultimately closer to the truth. Sure. Um, so, so, you know, that, that aspect of the profession is, is great. And in private practice, I get to interact a lot more with uh, defense attorneys, which right. you don't get to do in a, in a public crime laboratory, especially, a, a, you know, one under law enforcement and having that interaction and, and um, dealing with defense attorneys, you get a much broader perspective of kind of what the issues they're dealing with and the questions they have. And I think it's made me a better forensic scientist. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So, <laughs> So one of the phrases I, I try to teach people when I'm teaching about bias and the you know the the inherent bias of the adversarial system is I I will often say Todd having worked defense cases has made me a better forensic scientist I literally say that all the time when I'm teaching so it's kind of cool that you independently have felt the same way that 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 uh, resonates very well with me it's like humming a tune where suddenly it's in sync I, I really like hearing that, that from you that analogy again. <laughs> Again, bad analogy. Doesn't doesn't ring true with me. <laughs> had, had you ever worked defense cases prior to your own business? Well, I would like to say at, at Oakland, I was work. My paycheck said the city of Oakland, so I felt like my ultimately I was working for the citizens of Oakland and, and the broader justice community. But generally, no. It was you know most ninety nine point nine percent of of requests came in either as part of an investigation or a district attorney um, as part of a trial. Right. Um, I think one or two times the defense attorney had a question and our laboratory felt we were in a position to help answer that question, but that was pretty rare. Yeah. So along those same lines, Todd, would you say or would you agree with the following that when you worked for the, the, the crime lab, your answer would have been the same no matter who asked the question, right? If it came from the prosecutor or the defense, your answer would be the same. What I found is that when I started working defense cases, defense attorneys don't ask the same questions. Does that sound like something that uh, you would agree with? That resonates, although I can't immediately think of a good example of that. But yes, that does resonate. Um, kind of that, that theme. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I know in fingerprints, when I worked for the crime lab, it was basically whose fingerprints are these? 
when I started working a lot of defense cases, the defense attorney specifically was saying, can we exclude my guy? Were there other bits of evidence that were not looked at by the crime lab that we could actually exclude my client on? Those That different perspective, those kinds of questions you know, came to mind readily. And I was surprised at how they looked at these sorts of cases, what kinds of things were actually more important to them. Yeah. And I find often I can help a lot with just navigating the paperwork and I can take a, I'm pretty good at taking a look at the paperwork and letting a, an attorney know if they're missing something, um, which mm -hmm. often they are. And I say, no, 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 go back. You need to ask for this, that, and this. And I think that is also a huge help just so they get a better picture of, of what they're dealing with. Yeah. Well, well, Glenn, I, I think um, we should start back with uh I guess an episode we did a few months back uh, regarding a firearms case out of New York and that Todd may be able to provide some more details on. Right. So back in September of 2020, episode 227, we discussed a decision out of New York, New York v. Ross, R-O-S-S, -S, which dealt with uh, firearms evidence admissibility. And this was right around the time Eric and I were talking about some other cases and admissibility challenges, including some crease prints that come up, came up a little bit later. And we were comparing and contrasting uh, different issues going on in different other disciplines besides fingerprints right now. And apparently, Todd, you were, uh, you gave testimony in that, that case and also listened to that episode. And so maybe you might have some comments, some corrections. You can educate us on what we got right, didn't get right. Let's, uh, let's dive into that a little. Uh, let's talk about that case if, if you can. Sure. I'll be honest. I don't, I did listen to your episode. That was like a week ago. And so you're, you're really testing my memory on exactly what you said. I didn't take notes. <laughs> we don't know. I, don't worry about it's it. all gone. <laughs> but, but, but the, you know, I'll, um, so I testified almost exactly a year ago. I think it was January of 2020. Oh, the before times. Uh, back in the time right. when, yeah, <laughs> but pre, pre, uh, back when we used to have a civilization where you could easily travel to and from across the country. So I was asked, I was called in by the prosecuting to basically defend the science of firearm tool mark examination. Um, so talk about the research that's been done and uh, not really talk about the spe specifics of the case. So the prosecutor also called in their QA manager of the uh, NYPD crime lab. And I think also a, a senior examiner to talk about what they do at New York. And then I was there to just talk about kind of the, the big picture stuff. So that that's was my purpose to um, come in, talk about error rate studies and um, the, the discipline as a whole. And uh, it was an interesting experience in that I found overall the judge, from my perspective, very, very much limited my testimony in that uh, she wouldn't let me talk too much about the research and the studies. Um, and if you read the opinion from the judge, she says I was not able to talk about the studies and from my perspective, yeah, I wasn't able to because she wouldn't let me. So at the end of the day, I wasn't a very effective witness because she just wouldn't let me talk about much of much of the stuff. I mean, was there a legal ruling about their like the studies admissibility or something? You know, so the way the testimony worked often was I would be in the witness box and then an objection would be made and I would have to actually get up and leave the courtroom huh. and then they would talk about it and then I'd be allowed back in. Huh. Uh, that happened a number of times 
Interesting. Uh, if I were to guess, maybe six or seven times that happened throughout the day. So by the end of the day, by the end of my, my testimony, uh, there was almost no cross because the defense had done enough of a job of just not allowing me to, to testify and convincing the judge that I shouldn't be allowed to testify. And so that's the way our, our legal system works. They convinced the judge that I, I wasn't the proper uh, witness to testify about a lot of the research that was out there. So this is interesting. I, I wonder if it has something to do along the lines of like a voir dire objection. So were they objecting to either you didn't do the studies personally or you aren't a statistician or you're not in you know, what they consider, whatever that might be, some sort of expert in testing and research? Uh, that, that's interesting. I, and my brain I think is... I, was, I was qualified as an expert in study design with regards to forensic science. I was not allowed, I was not allowed to talk much about statistics. And the, um, mm. if you read the, the decision, the judge ended up calling in a, um, statistician yeah. from, oh. from CSA. <laughs> we had um, lots of comments about her. <laughs> so, so a CSA, um, statistician, I frustrated by, by what I heard from, you know, re reading what the opinion was um, with regards to that. And, you know, but that's the judge's prerogative. She felt like she needed what she felt was a, a neutral body, a neutral person, a neutral body. And, and so she called in uh, CSAF. You know, it's the judge's courtroom at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Well, that, that's interesting um, because I can see if you're hamstrung and can't talk about the studies. But it sounds like the, the judge didn't want to hear from you about the studies really just wanted to have their own sort of neutral person. But Eric and I pointed to a few things that that person has presented on and given, and it was clear that they're not very knowledgeable about forensic science. They may be very knowledgeable about st statistics, but they, they were, they were even talking about the low card principle and had that, um, I don't remember what exactly what it was, but they had it wrong. I mean, it was, it was bizarre what they had, was it called the locate principle? Something or the, it was. It was like a, a, a an autocorrect thing with uh, the the yeah the, the transfer uh, principle. So, um, yeah. Locard became I don't remember Picard maybe locate so, yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, Picard. Right. It's it's something that is fundamental to forensic scientists. We understand forensic science. And some of us have taken the time to have to learn statistics and some of the proper ways to talk about statistics. But it's frustrating when statisticians who are being called in have not taken the proper time to learn about forensic science and yet are effectively judging, if you will, and offering some sort of critique on, a, on a, an entire science that they haven't really invested in. And I, I say that as a criticism and let me give exceptions to the rule. I mean, you know, Tom Busey came in as a psychologist and has spent time learning about fingerprints. And then you've got people like Hal Stern at CSAFE who have taken the time to learn about different disciplines. So there are those exceptions. I'm just I'm frustrated by this, this pattern of statistician, law professor, interloper from the outside who's not taking the time to actually invest and learn about the discipline that they're, they're criticizing. Yeah, to, to play devil's advocate, um, the CSAFE statisticians have done some research. It's it's very um, 3D algorithm based, but at least there is some base of knowledge. So I, I give th this group at least some of that credit. And some of the research that they have done is actually fantastic. It basically, it really supports 
some of the fundamental principles of firearm and tool mark examination. Now, the, I have not seen any, any of the research dealing specifically with examiner error rates, which was really a, a major focus of, of part of this hearing, which is interesting because New York is a fry state. And so the right. error rate is not even one of the checkboxes, you know, one of the, the possible categories that a judge should consider that's under um, Daubert. Uh, so, so it's interesting that was such a large focus of, of this hearing. I think that has to do with who, because of what the the, peop, the defense experts that came in and testified talked a lot about examine error rates and the flaws in in our um, past studies, and and so that became a major focus of this hearing. Uh, to I don't know what's the opposite of devil's advocate, um, but uh, the, the <laughs> to play devil's advocate on the other the advocate? other side, I guess yeah. There, there's an upcoming. Uh, talk i think that's sponsored by csafe about reevaluating the uh the black box papers from fingerprints using uh irt instead of ctt anyway i i'm dubious at best but um well i, I think i think you guys should should pay attention to that because i think some of the issues that we may talk about in this episode you know you might get primers for stuff you guys can start getting questions on based maybe based on what is presented no absolutely that, that's a, that sounds like a really good idea prepare the rest of the examiners for for how to uh what was your old class glenn uh defend against the um the dark, dark arts, arts. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah. let, let's so let's actually start talking about these accuracy studies in firearms right glenn and i have talked the accuracy studies in latent prints to death over the past eight years so um so it's kind of you know refreshing to get like new papers to bite into uh so so let, let's yeah let's you know, you know let's talk about some of these accuracy studies that have come out in the firearms field uh their strengths and weaknesses and and, you know, essentially, how good are fire examiners at making IDs? That sounds like a great idea. Uh, Todd, if you could, why don't you kind of cover the, the give us the, the, the two-minute PCAST review of the various sorts of studies and what the, the ultimate findings of PCAST were and what studies, if you will, passed, quote unquote, the PCAST test. Sure. I think that's a good, good place to um, discuss the study. So PCAST looked at I think the total was ultimately nine different studies that they were, were aware of, and uh, they grouped the studies into kind of subcategories. So one of the categories is what they call kind of a within set study, and they that study design is basically the test taker is given a number of items and just ask intercompare these, do any of them come from the same firearm? The PCAST critique of that is that there's there's interdependency in the, in those studies, and unless you set up your answer key to track all the different comparisons, to determining a true false positive error rate is problematic or, or tricky. Because because we don't know how many how many comparisons happen until you found the match effectively. We don't know what the denominator is. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you if you if you did come up in the error rate of you know. Uh, false positive over correct answers. The correct answers. There's a number of comparisons that go into those correct answers, right? So, so any false positive error rate that comes out of that really would be kind of an overestimate uh, because there's going to be a lot more comparisons built into just to that that study design. That being said, that that kind of casework is what happens day to day in almost every single crime laboratory. You're just given a, a pile of evidence and 
that's part of the challenge, right? Is how do you organize yourself and do these comparisons and keep track of all your comparisons and make sure error doesn't occur while you're doing these, all these inner comparisons. So, so like with the fingerprint black box study, you know, the examiners were presented with, you know, one unknown, one known asked to compare those two to each other. And then once you're done, then you move on to the next pair. And what you're saying here is the examiners were given, you know, a pile of, let's say 10 unknowns, 10 knowns, and then asked to figure out which goes with which. If, if, Correct. if any, right. If any, and right. did, did, did they all so, have a match? Like if, could you match up all 10 to each other or were there some that were extras and didn't match anything or multiples no. to the same? Right. Um, so there's one, I, there's one study that was out of the FBI and it only dealt with FBI sure. examiners and, mm -hmm. Um, so that, that I don't even really consider an error rate study. It's kind of an FBI validation study. Um, when I talk about the study, I call it, call it an early study. And when you read the, that paper, it was, this paper is really designed to test for test taking bias. And the reason why that hypothesis is given is because there was only one true match in all the inner comparisons, all the other, all the other comparisons oh. don't, don't actually match up. So the, the thought was, well, if you're taking one of these tests, you're, there's an expect, expectation of a certain number of matches. And from that, the, the, there were no false positives from the, the FBI, that FBI study. But like I said, it's limited to the eight or so FBI examiners that, that took that test. Still a performance study. It is. It is. Um, it's still a test of the method, right? If the method right. is simply flipping a coin, you would, you would detect error. Um, right. And, and it, there were no errors detected. Another within set study is the lead author is Tasha, Tasha Smith from the San Francisco Crime Lab. And this tried to really mimic casework in that, again, hunk of evidence, intercompare. There were matching items and non-matching items. I'm going to just say, I'm, I'm saying the word matching because it's colloquial and we all know sure. what it means. Yes. It's obviously a dirty word in, in forensic science. You never <laughs> testify about that. But that being said, I'm going to use it anyway. And so this is another within set study. It's just, it ends up being a footnote in PCAST. There are false positive and false negative error rates in that publication from in the journal Forensic Sciences, but uh, PCAST kind of um, brushed it aside. Um, so th that's the, that's one study design. I'll try to go more quickly about the other ones. There's an another study design called uh, closed set to set. So here we have a set of knowns, a set of questions. So one of the study design that gets repeated several times is you'll have 15 questions and then 10 knowns. So your number of questions and your number of knowns is not equal and you're asked to intercompare, but you're not prescribed which comparisons to actually do. It's up to you to try to figure out mm. um, what, if anything matches, but the it's called closed because ultimately all the questions do have a matching known. Ah. Okay. So this is similar to like our certification type test, Eric, right? Where it's a, or the or old was, test, yeah. I guess the old search test. Yes. It was more of a closed set like this. Yes. Okay. So that makes sense. But, but it, there's, it's not just a one-to-one -one match where when you get to the last unknown, well, there's only one known left like that, where it becomes just obvious where you just pick it because there's nothing left. There's, there's more unknowns. So, when you get to the last one, you still actually have to compare all 10, uh, compare it to all 10 knowns to see which one, or at least compare until you find the match. 
Uh, it's not just a, you know, write it off because it, this is, it has to match this last known that's left. Yeah, that that's absolutely correct. You know, and, and so one of these studies that has this design is often referred to as the Hamby study. Oh, and yes. um, he, Actually, the different kits are are mixed differently too. So one of the tests that went out, there might be you know, so you have fifteen questioned, but there might be four extras that all go to the same known. And then the next right. test kit, it might be kind of randomly randomly done. So the test there's variation from test kit to test kit that went out as well, which which I think is good for a little bit more test integrity. People, you know, you can't just share answers necessarily. Um, well, remind the listeners of that, that this isn't like a fingerprint study where if I'm designing a test, I can send 20 latents and 20 knowns to people as digital images. Explain the, the, the hurdle that you have to get over with these kinds of tests. Well, you're, you're sending physical evidence. So Correct. participant one could literally have different different objects in front of them than participant two. They, they Yes, they uh, uh, typically you do. You have different physical items. So obviously when you're firearm and tool mark examination is you're looking at fired ammunition components. You're looking at fired bullets or fired cartridge cases, and you physically look at those items under a light comparison microscope. This is the traditional method of, of doing comparisons. And so in order to proctor one of these tests, you have to test fire a number of firearms thousands of times, you know, in order to get these numbers of samples. We, we, um, did a virtual study, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, but we did the math to really do the same test. We'd have to test fire 10,000 times to get all the samples out to all the people who signed up for the test. And imagine now test firing, you have to keep good track of those test fires, scribe them, label them. It's very labor intensive to proctor one of these tests. It's not just a matter of digitizing a latent print and then sending it off to the cloud oh, yeah can you, can you imagine just just making ten thousand latent lifts and then you know ma- physically mailing those out with <laughs> that, that's yeah that's definitely an extra challenge for the for the, that field is there a concern that you know test fire one versus test fire ten thousand could have potentially some different randomly acquired characteristics or appear quite different. In other words, even though they might be getting, you know, the same source sample, maybe there's a change that's happened throughout that. So perhaps even if it is same source examiner who gets 10,000 might not be expected to reach the same conclusion as examiner one because of changes in the physical creation of these objects. That's certainly something that potentially can happen. Um, The marks, can change over time and vary. There's been some a fair number of studies to look at that. And actually, one of the area studies, uh, what that's the Fadul study out of, of Miami that looks at cartridge cases, actually used that phenomenon to test the persistence persistence of marks. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they sent out the first test set. They call it phase one, and then they realized after producing all of these test fires. They, they had now exactly a difference of a thousand test fires from the first sets they sent out to the next. So then they made a second phase two set. So now you can send new questions and have those questions be compared to your original knowns. And now they're a thousand test fires apart and see what did the error rate look like after that difference of a thousand test fires. And the yeah. accuracy was still very, very good, but it's a neat, clever way of testing that hypothesis of yeah. how does, do the marks change so much over, te- over a thousand test fires that now we lose that accuracy. Or sensitivity. Did, Correct. Either could have changed. Right. Right. 
did it? So the I don't remember off the top of my head the they reported of overall error rate in that study, mm. and it was quite low. Uh, but I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the number off the top of my head. Sure. So okay. you you had mentioned you know, both bullets and casings. Is uh, for these studies? Is it does it go back and forth? Is there are studies? Do they usually go with one over the other? They, there's mixtures of both. The Hamby study is, is bullets. The Fudul I just talked about was cartridge cases. There's another Fudul study that looked at um, what are called Glock marking barrels. So Glock is a firearms manufacturer and they traditionally have very smooth barrels. And so there was research project looking research project looking into making Glock barrels uh, more markable. And so let's test and see if examiners can accurately uh, compare these bullets from these kind of prototype type bullets. Um, so that's another bullet sure. study. Uh, the FB, there's a new FBI black black box study that just went out that has cartridge cases and bullets in it. So I kind of there's a pretty good okay. mixture of both. Do you find that there are general differences in the error rates between, you know, let's say the cartridge cases versus the bullets versus some tool marks or bunter marks or, you know, whatever kind of mark you might be looking at? Within um, firearms, I've not seen much variance that seems to stand out regarding um, cartridge cases versus bullets. I don't know much about tool marks. There has not been a lot of as much study into tool mark type comparison studies. Right now, it's been mostly concentrated on firearms. And I suspect that's because the bulk of casework, at least sure. in the United States, revolves yeah. around firearm and tool mark. Sure, it does. USA, sure. USA. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you kept busy at Oakland. We had a good clientele base. <laughs> Growth industry. So the, the design of these studies, you know, it's not just random, you know, bullets, you know, A through Z that are being used. There's there's some effort to kind of like in fingerprints stack the deck where some of the comparisons are close non-matches. Uh, and in the firearms accuracy studies, that seems to be mainly accomplished through either, you know, consecutive barrels or consecutive firearm manufacturer uh, you know, in the manufacturing process, the theory being if these two barrels of these two firearms were manufactured back to back, they would have the most similarity. Correct. I mean, that's that's consecutively manufactured firearms by definition means the same tooling that makes a firearm um, is used consecutively one after the other. And so it's it's an attempt to disprove the hypothesis. You know, if, if this there were to be similar marks and potentially subclass marks, which is always something of, of concern in firearm tool mark examination, this is, these are the types of samples where that would show up. And um, you know, so a lot of these studies do use that, uh, that those types of samples for these, these studies. Trying to increase the random coincidental matching characteristics that could occur between samples. Correct. And, and also these studies use all same class characteristics. So one of the, the primary tools of elimination, which is different class, you know, different caliber, sure. different grooves, different firing pin shape, you know, no one's really interested in that. Of course, I can tell, I can count five versus six grooves on a bullet. You know, we, we, we'd expect really good accuracy with that. So all this is this base, the same make and model um, across a number of firearms, again, to, to, kind of up the difficulty that you may not typically see in day-to-day -day casework. 
Todd, you mentioned subclass characteristics. Can you discuss a little bit of what that is for listeners who may not know and the importance of these and why this keeps coming up in these sorts of hearings? Yeah, sure. No, no problem. So cl- class characteristics are characteristics that are kind of pre-baked into the manufacturer of the firearm. So the number of grooves inside of a barrel, um, the shape of the firing pin, the caliber of the firearm. You know, the, so the, the, the firearm manufacturer predetermines these. And um, that those class characteristics are very recognizable. But obviously, if I have a bullet that's fired in a barrel that's six grooves, and then my question firearm has five grooves, well, without that bullet was definitely not fired in this firearm. So class is very um, useful in, in limiting your source and, and doing performing eliminations. Subclass characteristics are accidental marks that occur on the firearm, but can transfer across a number of firearms. And so these have been known for decades. Um, I think the, the first, uh, John Murdoch, another firearm examiner is, is going to be upset with me not remembering the, the reference, but these, these have been talked about um, since I want to say the 1930s, they were first recognized. And there's a number of papers uh, back to the 1970s. And it, it's the reason why this is of interest is because they are incidental tool marks. If you don't recognize them as such, they, they are not as uh, individ, individualizing. They're less unique. You know, so if you were to base a opinion of same source using subclass, you are potentially wrong because you're not using marks that are random or, or what we call individual marks. You know, so th- these are marks that are likely to have a, other brothers or sisters out in the wild. And so they're, they're not as useful for source attribution. We would call those low specificity features because of the potential to be shared across different sources. Yep, exactly. So thank you, Glenn, for that. It's perfect. Uh, and I'm going to steal that low specificity. Well, I mean, um, it's just that, that's what we refer them in fingerprints, where you might have a set of minutia that we know minutia are you know, have some rarity to them and usefulness, but we know that some kinds of minutia have the potential to be shared by other donors. And it really is a, not so much about the number of minutia, but their, their overall specificity. And that's what it sounds like you guys are dealing with. You've got your class characteristics that are so critical for your exclusions, probably even more so than ours. And you've got your, the subclass that are just lower specificity features, but still, can be useful for potentially excluding some sources, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you have very strong subclass characteristics um, and they are not present on your question samples, um, that provides some evidence of different source, right? And another thing about subclasses, they're well characterized in that they have some characteristics that kind of uh, an examiner is trained and recognized Learn, learn to recognize them. And they also will show up in certain locations. So for example, on a bullet, subclass characteristics, if, if present, will show up uh, typically on the groove impression and not another area of the bullet that's called the land impression. And that just has, that has to do with the, how the rifle rifling so is made. So one of the questions I wanted to ask, I, I've actually wondered this for a number of years now. So f- finally getting a firearms person on the show is a, is a good way to ask this question. So, and this is again trying to to roughly approximate or translate latents into firearms, which obviously is going to break down if you look at it too closely. But the the concept of 
consecutive barrels or consecutive firearms in the manufacturer leading to, you know, these really similar class and subclass characteristics is, again, you're, you're, you're trying to make the comparisons as difficult as possible. And uh, in latent prints, that I would think roughly correlates to, you know, identical twins where, you know, just by by chance that those are the people with the closest uh, fingerprint features. However, consecutively manufactured <laughs> human. That is an excellent way to put that. I, I don't know any identical <laughs> twins to mention that to offhand, but next time I, I, I find I, <laughs> I, I, I'm talking to one, that is exactly what I'll be thinking. Um, but for in the fingerprint world, the, the way we, more stack the deck in trying to find two people who just happen to have uh, as similar as possible fingerprints uh, is through an APHIS search. So you put a fingerprint in, you look at a billion fingers and find the one that is closest, the closest non-match. I I know Niven is mm, somewhat notorious for not being as effective as APHIS, uh, but it could could that be another way to to design a study where you find these uh, individualizing characteristics between two different source firearms that are just just happenstance as close uh, you know very close, but I mean they're not consecutive. It's it's the actual unique characteristics that just happened out of thousands of other firearms to be kind of close. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a neat idea. You know, there's one or two cases in the literature that I'm aware of. Um, so there's kind of an infamous subclass example. The paper is by Rivera and is a case of Smith & Wesson, um, two Smith & Wesson pistols that he, had, he saw in Niven that had this remarkable similarity. And so that that's an example where Niven was found two samples that were remarkably similar and the profession then followed up got a bunch more samples from smith wesson of the same make and model it just happenstance you know that whatever made those those firearms that uh, rivera found that process just wasn't happening again the, the tooling was just particularly rough i guess on the day that those those firearms are made but i i do think eric that that is something to look forward to in the future, especially now with the emergence of 3D technology and um, more and more comparisons occurring that uh, across a much broader scale with much more robust kind of machine vision type algorithms that can handle much, much larger databases. Right now, the FBI and the uh, Netherlands are building a firearms database that is going to run large population um, statistics. And I, I think that type of samples will further um, elucidate and provide us information about the distribution of well, geez, if, if, When that comes online, I, be careful because when when <laughs> when a system like that came online for fingerprints, we got Mayfield. So, uh... <laughs> and, and it really changed how we thought about the potential of a match, yeah. meaning that uh, before we thought, oh, the chance that two people could share X number of characteristics before these databases, we would have guessed it to be around four or five because that's what you would just see by random pairings, just coincidentally. But once uh, these databases came online for us, we started seeing 
remember four or five would have been like the top. We started seeing eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 characteristics shared between different people, different fingers. And it started really changing our perspective of how similar can they actually be when you have access to a large population? You know what? And to, to clarify, the way this database is going to be used is not for national searches of firearms, but to provide literally population statistics of firearms. Mm -hmm. So you, you'll run um, a comparison, get a comparison score with whatever algorithm you're using, and then that same algorithm will have been used against the FBI's database um, that NIST, NIST I should also give NIST credits. NIST is also involved in this. And so they will have di distributions and plugging in the meta metadata for your firearms will provide you distributions to ping against and then provide you a likelihood ratio of of the comparison that is in front of you. That's the, well, that's the goal, at least. The, no, that makes yeah. complete sense. The, the downside might be that the, the LRs, the likelihood ratios coming back, may be lower than you might guess because – if there is more commonality in the database than, than expected, then the likelihood ratios will be will returned will be lower because effectively the features are basically you're being told these aren't as uncommon or rare as you might have placed weight on them. I, I don't care what I think about it. I just only care about what, <laughs> what the data tells me, you know, so that if that's the way the data falls, then so be it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that's really interesting. And that sounds like a great place for, for firearms to, to go. Uh, it sounds like in that realm, you guys are ahead of us. I don't know why we can't have the same thing for fingerprints. We're getting there, Glenn. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why if the FBI is doing that for, for well, I guess, privatized data is the biggest issue. For for, right. The PII stuff uh, is is just a yeah. such a hurdle sometimes. Um, yeah. So... So, well, it's not live yet, so so cross our fingers. But they keep talking about it at conferences, so I'm yeah. hopeful. Okay. So, all right. So, Todd, I mean, you mentioned the number of studies. And so if I had stopped you on the street and said, hey, do you guys have studies for firearms? Sounds like, yeah, you've got a lot. So why are these challenges still really coming for firearms? And why are you guys getting some still getting, you know, this limiting opinions and, and just a flurry of challenges when it sounds like there are a number of studies? What What's the deal? <laughs> well, I, I, I forgot to bring my tinfoil hat to our podcast recording. But, um, <laughs> so so here th this is my speculation about what's going on, informed by being a witness in, in several recent admissibility hearings. Um, I've testified in um, Washington, D.C. There's another case um, called U.S. versus Tibbs, where the, the judge limited oh, uh, firearm examiner testimony. I, I was a witness. I in think that you as meant well. Mr. Tibbs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I've also testified in, in uh, a recent case last October, U.S. versus Harris, where the, the judge. Oh, yeah. In light of Harris, in light of Tibbs, kind of looked at the Tibbs analysis and said, "No, I don't agree, really agree with that analysis. Uh, actually, you know, seems seems okay with me. This fits Rule 702." So I've been kind of on both sides of the equation. So with that that background and kind of to inform my opinion about this, I think one thing that has been that I've seen in the motions to exclude is that we didn't pass the PCAST bar. So I was talking too much about the studies, but ultimately what PCAST said was there's only one study that we looked at. It's the Baldwin study and it's the right of right design. And since you only have one and not two, 
Fireman Toolmark's examination falls short of foundational validity. And if this was a video format, you'd see me quoting foundational validity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So because we only have one, um, we didn't pass the PCAST threshold. And so then the way these motions go is, well, we have the 2008 NAS report. So there's a 2008 NAS report dedicated to uh, ballistic imaging is the title of it. So looking at the concept of a national ballistics database, there's some choice quotes from that that uh, defense attorneys like to pull from. And then there's the 2009 NAS report. And then there's the PCAST report and say, they say, look, judge, we have this trifecta of real scientists who look at firearms and they say it's all bunk. And so judge, you really got to throw this stuff out. So that's kind of the genesis of, of these motions. And more recently, several critics have come in and have really gone after the air raid studies, even the ones that have been accepted by PCAST and subsequent follow-ups that fit the PCAST mode and really have started getting into the nitty gritty of these studies um, and attacking the study design, attacking the concept of inconclusives and saying those are actually really errors, actually inconclusives are false positive errors. And then it just really confuses everything and uh, it's it, it gets really messy. Yeah. All right. There's a lot in there to unpack. Let me let me try to unpack. Sorry. There's a lot in there to unpack. Let me just try to get a quick one because I know Eric's going to want to jump on the inconclusive. So let me let me ask this. So DNA mixtures, complex DNA mixtures, you know, four and five person that didn't pass PCAST either, and yet they're they're still testifying. They've had challenges, but they're not being limited in any way. Why are why is firearms being treated differently here? You're, I don't know. Can you tell me? <laughs> you know, I, I looked, so for example, I look at the um, mixture study that was published by NIST. Uh, I think it was published in 2018. Yeah, and there's the some, NIST 13 study. Yeah. Right? So there's some studies in there where, you know, some of the samples where the false inclusion rate is. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Like, it's it's eye-opening, you know, and yeah. the, the, the magnitude of difference of the statistics reported as well, you know, yes. is like... Orders now, of now, magnitude of 10, uh, you know, powers of 10, and we, tens can, of billions. We might argue the difference between a quintillion and a non-million is probably not really, does it really matter? But yeah, when, when it's orders of, you know, 10 plus magnitude, it, it also uh, is interesting. But look, you know, all this ultimately, whether it's DNA or fingerprints or uh, firearms or drug chemistry, there's some human judgment involved. So you, you yes. can't you can't expect perfection, right? And I think that's something that perhaps every discipline needs to be willing to concede that we're fallible. And we just need to do our utmost to protect against those fallacies and make sure a good work product goes out the door. So I, I guess I'm just I'm still really trying to understand. I mean, if you have the studies, and even if you disagree on some of the numbers or the the confidence intervals it's still relatively low. Even if we can't agree on the exact number, we can still say it's less than 10% or less than 5%. And that's probably, you know, even being rather unfair. Why isn't that enough? Why isn't that enough for the judge to go, okay, we understand that they, they happen, but they tend to be on the more uncommon side. Let's move forward. Why, why, why is that not good enough? Why, why do you have to have a very specific number before you can move forward? Well, if you read the Tibbs decision, the judge really provides a, a very long Dalbert analysis and why he felt we fell short a lot of the, the criteria. 
Uh, interestingly, he found we, we are testable and we have been tested. So we checked that box. But um, for example, in the error rate study, he kind of buys into the fact that inconclusives are an error. He says he didn't quite think they were false positive, but they're of some sort of error. And therefore the error rate is somewhere around 20 to 30%. So that that's trouble. Okay. All right. Um, All right, Eric. So, so the, Here we go. I've seen your guys' black box study. You know, this is this is not a related. This is not going to be solely a firearms thing. If 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 the judiciary buys into this, your guys' conclusive rate is, right. is just as high. I think. Oh, if not, if not higher, depending on on how hard that you want to make the test. You, you guys ever see that movie Scanners? You know, <laughs> my head. Michael Ironside. My, yeah, Michael Ironside is 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 like these judges making my. You know, I'm the guy with the glasses with the head about to explode. Um, so, all right, for inconclusive, the way I see it, it, you know my inconclusive decision when I'm going through a uh, latent print comparison, kind of fits two different scenarios. One, the the known sample is somehow insufficient, uh, but we can set that one aside for now because that's that's relatively easy to explain. But as long as both the, the is if the known is a sufficiently recorded sample, inconclusive for me is a specific strategy to reduce my risk of error. Is, is that a fair way to describe your inconclusive in the firearms realm as well? Absolutely. If you don't have enough data to provide provide a a confident decision, a confident result, then you shouldn't be providing that result, but that's that's regardless of any discipline. You know, I've I've done drug testing where I got a very low signal as trace amount, and I wasn't going to report a positive result because my signal was inconclusive. That's not an error. <laughs> and maybe if I used I had a different GCMS, then I would have gotten a better result, but I didn't. You know, um, so I, you know, inconclusive the, that decision should provide reassurance i think to the judiciary because because now we we can feel confident that results going out the door are really ones that the laboratory and examiners feel confident reporting right you you have instead of a a single threshold where everything is either above and an id or below and a an exclusion you have two thresholds um and having two thresholds reduces the risk of error because you can adjust them each individually and bump one up really high and one up really low and anything in the middle, you know, you, you say you just don't know. And that, that reduces error. Uh, so to me, the, the concept of any inconclusive to get rid of it or, or we shouldn't have it at all, or, or you should consider these errors is absolutely insane. Yeah, it, it came up, you know, and actually, Glenn, in the Tibbs case, your paper with Dr. Dror was one of the um, papers being used by the defense to say, look, inconclusives are really actually error. That's not the way I read your paper. And that's um, not what we, no, it's not what I said at all. I mean, <laughs> I, I agree, but but that that's what was argued. Um, I, I did not agree at all with what the paper, the paper said, if you're using inclusives to decide not to decide, then it's problematic. You know, yeah. In, uh, in fact, I, I, I'm sure our message was there are some instances where inconclusive would not be appropriate, and that's where you have an extremely strong signal so far above the baseline noise that it's unambiguous, and in such a case, inconclusive would be inappropriate. Yeah, that's uh, that's bizarre to me. Um, 
but well, there you go. All right, so let's let's back up for a second, and since we're talking about conclusions here, let's let's talk about the the conclusion scale that you use in firearms. What are the possible conclusions that you can reach? Sure. So since 1990, I think I was actually um, officially adopted by AFTI in 1992. AFTI adopted what is a five point conclusion scale. So there's identification. And then there's three ranges of inconclusive. So there's inconclusive A, which says there's some agreement of individual marks, but insufficient for an identification. Then there's inconclusive B, which is there's insufficient marks, um, uh, both either reproducibility or dissimilarity. And then there's inconclusive C, there's some dissimilarity, but insufficient for elimination. And the last one is um, elimination. And then there's a actually a sixth category, which is um, not suitable. Right. So it's a, mm-hmm. you get a hunk of metal. There's no class characteristics. There's nothing I can do with this. It's it's funny. It's been a a <laughs> the the term elimination in latent prints. Um, I've been we've been trying, I think, overall mm-hmm. to move away from this uh, as a whole. But uh, I'm not sure if you've ever come across this term in relation to latent prints. But uh, for us, elimination actually means identification. Um, but it means identification to the victim, which I would only imagine makes things very confusing if you have both a latent examiner and a firearms examiner going up back to back in court. I've never heard that you know? before. And yeah, it's very I, frustrating. That is, I, I, I have no idea how elimination means ID, but you've eliminated the victim as the source by identity. Well, you've eliminated them. the latent print from any other comparisons. Oh, yes. Because you've identified yeah. it to the victim, right. so you, you no longer need to compare that that unknown sample to any other uh, knowns. Yeah, um, that still doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's unfortunate. <laughs> so yeah, the, it's been a an ongoing effort to 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 basically decide. Hey, everyone, let's just stop using this word because it's going to be confusing. <laughs> you know, with met with greater or lesser uh, success, but. Uh, well, I, I can perfectly say exclusion. I don't really. It doesn't matter. Okay, so me. exclusion is fine with you. You okay? You do. That's good. Uh, if if I mix it up and say exclusion instead of elimination, it, it's it's just you know habit. So uh, apologies ahead of time. So you said inconclu- inconclusive. You've got these these ranges, these uh, you know these kind of middle grounds, and that's dates all the way back to ninety two, which is even before your yes, time. That's right. I was I was doing um, um, DNA experiments with Mrs. Black in 1992. So, uh, but I mean, how has this affected the discipline? Have you heard back stories of the when that came into being? If people like threw fits and went crazy over five options instead of I'm presuming fewer than five before that, has it has it worked out overalls in the past? You know, uh, almost 30 years. Well, you know, I don't know the history if that was controversial or not when that came out i do think having a agreed upon scale of conclusions it's mostly used that's used mostly around the world europe has so there are some european labs that have their their likelihood ratio you know nsv scale but for the most part this is what the profession uses throughout the world and having that codified range of conclusions i think is fantastic for the discipline because we're, when we say something, we all say it, we all know what it means. And I do think I've read some old reports that use, I think, similar to what 
fingerprints might have used is basically an ID or non-ID. Yeah. Right. And when I read that non-ID, I feel like there's a loss of information. I don't know yeah. really what that means. And yeah. so having a, a broader scale there is great. The one critique I would potentially have of that after your range is the the three categories or buckets for inconclusive has created confusion and some people just use a three scale. So they use identification, inconclusive and exclusion because they feel like those three buckets are just all describing the same decision. And it's just a way of describing what, why you've reached inconclusive. And so within OSAC, um, we, we've tried to better categorize those, those three middle buckets. Interesting. It's so similar to our field in that way. When we introduce, right, inconclusive with features in agreement, inconclusive with features in disagreement, some were very comfortable with it. Some didn't like it. They just preferred inconclusive and let's just keep it at that. It's very, very similar. And that's what Glenn is saying. We've kind of evolved from the three and then we kind of split out, you know. uh, We evolved from ID, no ID, which is exactly Exactly. To then three. And then we kind of split off a version of inconclusive that was closer to an ID and then what what is now the 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 OSAC uh, conclusion document has not three inconclusives but five really separate categories where the middle one's inconclusive but the ones next to it don't use that inconclusive term they use their support for same source support for different source as separate categories is that the way OSAC is going for firearms as well or, or are you guys maintaining that inconclusive term for those leaning one way or the other categories. So we, we actually tried to get rid of the term inconclusive oh. altogether because we felt mm-hmm. like it's created a confusion. So our middle category is insufficient support basically for either way. Hmm. And I forget the exact term. Uninformative. Um, um, I, I'll let me, let me pull it up. I, I hate to talk about it too much because I think, Ultimately, ASB is going to slaughter it, and so I don't want anyone to get. And I, I, I think I've heard you guys talk about this as well. But oh yeah, <laughs> sorry, I should not be laughing. So, so the, the the the, the uh, shared experience, I think, between our disciplines is uh, remarkably similar. Yeah, there was there was a, a while you're looking that up. Uh, there was a few years back when I was on OSAC, there was an effort to to collaborate between these comparison fields and come to an agreement on a range of a conclusion scale that could be shared between uh, fingerprints, firearms, uh, footwear, uh, question documents, and blood spatter. And universal conclusion. Well, scale. so first blood spatter was like, well, we don't really do the questioned known like the the unknown known kind of comparison things so we're kind of out and we're like all right you got you know all right see you guys later uh, and then the other disciplines were like well and we couldn't ever get a, a solid we came close but it, it just kind of you know escaped and fell through the grasp and and now everyone's doing their their you know their own slightly different version of it um yeah eric i, I was there yeah. for all that and the thing that happened is we were so close to so having close. this unified unified scale, but but then it got then it got shopped around to um, groups outside of the physics sack. And when that happened, it just became too much of a mess. And I think it all kind of fell apart. And then 
so ultimately that that I think if we could, you know, with, in hindsight, if we could go back and just keep it within the physics stack, we would have had a unified scale. Austin, Austin did so much work to try to get that to go. Totally. And, and we were yeah. so close. Um, but, uh, yep. So Todd, you mentioned, and maybe the listeners may not be aware since I'm not sure Eric and I have talked about it before. You mentioned the MC scale. So for the listener, NC, that E N F, SI, the European Network of Forensic Science Institutes, created some reporting schemes for various disciplines, including footwear and fingerprints and firearms. And it's very similar to the OSEC expanded conclusion scale, where it's basically a verbal likelihood ratio scale, where you have limited support, moderate support, strong support, extremely strong support for same source or different source. You mentioned that and that you you know you guys are aware of that. Is there any interest in moving to that? Is that something that could be adopted through OSAC? What what are the, your thoughts on that kind of verbal likelihood ratio scale? Well, that's kind of I think the hot topic for both of our disciplines because if I can could read the room, I feel that there are many in kind of outside the discipline within academia that prefer kind of the verbal likelihood ratio type expression of our conclusions. Mm -hmm. And I'm personally not necessarily opposed to moving that direction, but it's hard to do that. Um, for one, do you think your discipline will go along with that? Um, I think ultimately yes, but it will be a struggle and a struggle for a couple of reasons. One, no one likes to rock the boat when you're in the boat. You know, I've been doing, there'll be the, the, I've been doing this for 10, 20 years. Why do I have to change? There'll be that opinion. Um, I think the bigger hurt, biggest hurdle, and the thing that great gives me more concern is what's our accuracy using that mm -hmm. type of scale. If we're mm -hmm. currently being held to the accuracy of our, the current scale, and that is not passing muster, how can, how is it even possible to consider moving to a different scale where we have very, very little data to no data using an entirely different verbal scale. And how does that affect things? So before we can sure. make that move, we need to see our accuracy and does it have a detrimental effect on the accuracy? I'm very data driven, you know? Yeah. So, so I think we really, we need to see that before we can, can make that jump. Uh, I do, I do like it though, because I feel like it does describe the process and that you're testing these alternative hypotheses and the evidence that you're looking at, what what's the pro what's the weight of that evidence given the the opposing hypotheses and sure. um i think that that's a nice description of of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis and it, it also begs examiners or beckons examiners to look for differences it's yeah. some, something that we all should be doing but to really try to fill that bucket of difference and see does it tip the scale the other direction i i, I think that's a healthy thing a healthy approach yeah, I'm, I've been using it now for a couple of years in my reports uh, because I'm not beholden to a crime lab. So <laughs> brag, brag, brag. Use that, and I I love it. And I will tell you that it it gives me more precise language uh, for communicating with other examiners. And where it really comes in handy is in conflict resolution, where examiners may have different views on uh, you know is this just over the line or below the line. It gives us better gives us more reporting options and more precise language to, as you say, really try to capture and characterize the weight of the evidence. How, how are these characteristics supportive or not supportive of one proposition over the other? And I, I really do love using it. It's very freeing and it's been 
been liberating to use? And if you read the, the firearms OSAC scale, we have, uh, I call it likelihood light type language. Um, stat, I'm sure statisticians, if they read it, was like, no, 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 that's not quite right. And they would like to massage it and make it into something that would not be intelligible anymore. So we've tried to put into language that examiners, uh, I think, would still appreciate and understand. But the problem with that, though, is then you, you can't please everyone, you know. So mm -hmm. we've tried to take that concept and 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 create you put into language that we think the discipline could use. And so we have, but our our document does have that um, different propositions and 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 that weight of evidence type language in it. And back to the original question that maybe was asked about ten minutes ago, our scale, it's exclusion, um, and then insufficient support for exclusion insufficient support for either exclusion or identification, insufficient support for identification, and then identification. So those are the, mm. the five buckets that are currently. Pretty similar. Them. I mean, slight differences, obviously, in language, but but pretty similar. It, it, you know, it at least gives me hope that that at some point in the relatively near future, there can be another effort to to do this universal standardized language. I think it would be very powerful if even if it's just our two disciplines that I think have much similarities. I think footwear could certainly be very similar as well. Um, right. If we all come in and and have the same scale and say the same thing and mean the same thing, I mean, just the the digestion of the material by the justice right. system, I think that is immensely helpful and, and beneficial. I, I see you left out those QD freaks, man. They're just crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to leave our, our QD brothers out, but they do, They have their like – uh, 20-point scale? I'm not quite sure we can get them on a five-point scale. So, Todd, earlier you mentioned when I was asking about DNA, you know, why are firearms examiners having such a tough time? Why are some of these decisions coming out unfavorable when other disciplines that either have fewer studies or less studies or no studies, why, you know, why aren't they running into the same issues or even the same rate of challenge? Is there a possibility, much like the field of fingerprints, that we once shot ourselves in the foot, that we had a lot of statements and personalities in our profession that were sort of larger than life, that were saying things that were really not supported zero by error science? Rate. You know, we were zero error rate to the exclusion of all others that currently live, will ever live in the future, or ever have lived in the past. And we would say some pretty outrageous things. And these were being taught at conferences. This was the party line. We we propagated a lot of pseudoscience and and we were resistant to some of the criticism and some of the issues that were coming up early on and really dug our heels in on a lot of our early Daubert challenges. So in a way, we we sort of shot ourselves in the foot. The firearms community, I've known a lot of firearms examiners over the years. They tend to be a lot of older, crusty, sometimes angrier, old men. I don't know if that's a fair characterization. Um, uh, you know, just the firearms examiners I've met over the years. I've met some some really nice guys, but they do tend to be a little old school and some, you know, cop-like mentality. What do you think that the, the, the impact on the discipline has been? And are you guys being penalized in some way for who are firearms examiners? Jeez, thank, thanks for the softball there, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'll be frank. Um, I, I think there's probably some truth to that. Um, I, 
uh, have heard, I've never witnessed it or seen transcripts, but I've heard that type of testimony, especially in the past, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was commonplace, um, where exclusion of the other, the others, I know it when I see it. I mean, that's kind of a joke that is right. said, you know, it's, a, it's an identification. I know it when I see it, you know, it just we doesn't, said it. It doesn't and, sound and, scientific, you know, it, right. it's not, it's not scientific, you know. And and we would say things really uh, condescendingly, like if someone said, well, how much is enough? We'd say, show me the print. And it was just, it's such a condescending answer, yet that was the standard answer. It was very antagonistic. The, well, it depends. I don't know. Show me the print and I'll tell you if it's enough or not. And that, that's not a very satisfying answer to someone who's trying to get at what does sufficiency mean? Absolutely. There are some crime laboratories, I think less so now, but some that still exist where um, you have to be a police officer in order to be uh, working in the, the crime laboratory in, in the firearm section. And I think that has to do with the perception of police officers are trained to handle firearms because they're a police officer. And so it's appropriate for them to handle them. I think, uh -huh. fortunately, more and more in order to become a police officer, you at least need a bachelor's degree. So there is more, at least more education to the, the base level police officer. But I think that's a dying out trend and that more and more accredited laboratories really require a science degree to, to right. become, to, be, to become employed. Um, but to, to go back to your original question, yes, I, I think that might be a perception problem. And I think I've experienced that in my testimony. So for example, in New York, because I'm not from an academic institution, I don't have a PhD. I'm not um, Dr. Legenberg. Um, <laughs> that I, uh, I, I think there, I got the sense, and of course this is speculation, but I got the sense the, the judge wasn't particularly impressed with me, even though I have published a number of papers. I've, you know, I've uh, co-authored in five different papers. I've published in the 3D research. I've been in the field for 20 years. I, she, I think the judge saw me as biased, as someone who is just coming in to to toe the party line and uh, wasn't particularly interested in what I had to say. And maybe that's because of what she typically sees day in, day out are, are the um, New York detectives that come and testify. So that's sure. just a guess. Um, but but maybe, Glenn, there there is some truth to what you're saying there. Well, I don't know if I was saying it or meant to say it in that way. I think I was I was just curious if you think you're if there's some penalty uh, because of how that discipline has grown up. And I know fingerprints at one point had that. I don't know if we're completely past it or not now, but we have, you know, we have definitely gone through changes. And a lot of it came from within our discipline having to write standards or best practice recommendations for testimony. That's where we really started trying to change things is trying to change the way people testified and move away from some of those old answers, some, some of those very guarded, weird old school answers to move into more modern well, and, answers. And that was really associated with the research that was coming out, right? When, once we had the yes, research, absolutely. then we had a better answer. And it was like, well, why not just say the better answer rather than the old school answer? Yeah, exactly, Eric. Yeah, you know, and I think AFTI, to its credit, has really tried to steer the community away from that. So, for example, there's the AFTI theory of identification. Uh, on a side note, I don't, in hindsight, I don't think calling a theory of scientific theory was um, a great idea. It's not 
to to self I, I self, agree. self a note self a note to, to to give yourself a the to say hey this is scientific theory someone else should do that it should have been titled something else but the intent of that uh, document was good in the sense that it tried to provide very brief summary of what goes into identification and also provided some guide rails and it says look this is not an absolute identification this is just practical. Now that practical and the practical certainty has over time, I think, kind of become weaponized and almost the conditional has been transposed with that. Um, mm -hmm. And so the intent of what was originally intended there, and I think it was controversial when it came out, you know, there were examiners like, no, well, it's exclusion of all others. Like, no, 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 that is not supported by what this profession has to say. This is, this is really, you know, so that was an attempt to, um, provide guide rails and also freely admit that this is subjective. You know, it's right yeah. there in the language. So I, I give acting the profession credit in an attempt to disallow that type of testimony you're talking about. It still has happened, but overall um, there's less old crusty men, as you would say, Glenn, um, <laughs> it's going, going the way of, of um, the way the DNA section has gone. And we're seeing a lot more, um, women coming into the field. And when I, more and more AFI conferences, um, there's a real transition and, and a young blood coming in. So I think the future is bright. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. One of the last uh, conferences I went at, uh, went uh, to in Florida, Pattern Symposium, I was surprised at how many female firearms examiners there were uh, with like, bachelor's and master's degrees coming out of, you know, accredited university programs. I was really impressed with the influx of research and understanding of statistics with your newer examiners. Yeah, I agree. I, and and if you look at the the leadership of AFDE and OSAC, the current chair of OSAC, the firearms subcommittee is, is a woman and there's plenty of uh, women um, presidents as well. Um, so, which is, which is great. I think the diversity is, is welcome. All right. So I know we're going way long, but it, I, 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 I feel that the conversation has been great this whole time. We could probably talk for another hour and a half uh, at total oh, easily, <laughs> but uh, so maybe that just means we have you back on um, you know, next time. There's some big firearms uh, case or paper that comes out. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about inconclusions. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Only a little, little bit. bit. Anyway, so, so I'm kind of the, the exclusion guy in, in latent prints and, this dates back to you know when my old uh, agency we switched from ID no ID to a a three conclusion scale and we were told all right start excluding and I don't know just exclude the easy ones or something and were sent forth to do so and and that kind of started me down this this whole path and one of the first things I did was start asking around to other disciplines about their exclusions and how they do that and what 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 requirements or what kinds of features do you look for in an exclusion so uh, for when you're doing a comparison and you know maybe it's different from bullets to cartridge casings but uh what you know if you can talk a little bit about what criteria are you looking for when you reach an exclusion conclusion you know how is that different than what you look for with an id you know, do you guys have specific policies about exclusions slash eliminations uh, in in firearms, or you know, what what can what can fingerprint examiners learn from firearms on how to be accurate in their exclusions? 
Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this is something I don't know enough about fingerprints to speak intelligently about what maybe the fingerprint discipline can learn from firearms. But if I point you guys to our OSAC document, sure. we go through a lot of the contextual information that examiners should consider when reaching an exclusion. And we're talking about exclusion here on differences of, of indiv what we call individual marks. So this would be differences of you know, your guys' level two and maybe a level three detail. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, you know, and it's very similar. The decision process is very similar, I think, to identification in that where I see enough differences that it's no longer a reasonable explanation that these could have come from the same source. That really the only reasonable explanation for the differences I'm seeing here is that these two items came from different firearms. And what goes into that decision can, can be a whole host of factors. And this is exclusion sometimes is when you have to start bringing in additional case information. So um, am I am I looking at the same ammunition? So, you know, in fingerprints, is there a reason for a distortion here or not? You know, so that, that mm -hmm. might cause two prints to look different. You see distortion. So that, you know, maybe if I think there's distortion, these are, are, might still be the same print. So if I have the same ammunition, do I know where these items collected around the same time? So I don't have to worry about um, alteration of the firearm that may cause differences or a, a large number of firings between the two. So I try to account for why I'm seeing those differences and there's no reasonable explanation for why those differences are occurring then um, that leads me, provides more and more evidence to me, uh, maybe kind of adjusting my priors for that likelihood ratio to, to really tip me over the edge. That, gosh, mm -hmm. the only reasonable explanation here is that these items came from different firearms. Now, so I remember reading back, because again, when I, when I first started with this, that was one of the first places I went was reading up on other disciplines. And I believe there was a maybe swig gun uh, document uh, back, well, maybe 10-ish years ago, where it specifically said that elimination slash exclusion was only if there were these class differences, caliber, number of lens and grooves, et cetera. But it sounds like you're, you're uh, first off, am I wrong about that? And then second, it sounds like you're expanding elimination to include, um, even if the caliber and these other class characteristics are the same, there's still room for elimination based on the 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 individualizing characteristics. Yes, and the the APTI range of conclusions is is clear on that. That differences of individual can be a sufficient if there's sufficient differences, you can eliminate just on differences of individual mm -hmm. marks. Uh, uh, so going back to the accuracy studies, I think we when we talk about accuracy, so far I think we've mainly been talking about accuracy for identification. What about the exclusion rate? Is is the the false negative rate uh, significantly higher than the false positive rate? No, it hasn't been actually. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. What, what is higher though with when you're looking at um, different source, what is higher there is our inconclusive rate. Oh. So that's where inclusives tend to bump up um, because in error rate studies, you have that, of, especially of the preferred design, you have your one question against maybe one or two knowns. And so a lot of that uh, additional information, for, first of all, I can't assess the re reproducibility of the marks on my question. I just have that one single one. And I have no information about the firearm um, that produces or the, the time of firing between the two. And mm -hmm. so because of that, I think examiners may be more cautious because they don't have that contextual information to know 
if the differences they're seeing here, how do I how do I count for those differences? And is is there sufficient information here to be definitive on the exclusion? Uh, so I, I I suspect that's why we see a higher rate of inconclusives because trying to just account for those differences is is difficult, especially in an error rate type scenario. That's 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 similar to handwriting as well. They have a very low specificity and rarely tend to use elimination in handwriting for exactly the same reasons that you talked about, that the range of possibilities are so much greater. There really could I, – I, I would hate to exclude this one because of lack of information or lack of understanding of all the possible factors that could be here because I'm only looking at one sample. I, I find that to be very similar to what you just said. Yeah, and the specificity is, is not horrible. It it's you know, ranges somewhere around I think around seventy to eighty percent, but it's not the you know ninety-five, ninety-nine, ninety percent that you sensitivity that you see on the on the other end. Mm. You know, so it, it, it is lower. Yeah, and I know you and I talked about this um during one of the happy hours. This is our happy hour conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that specificity in fingerprint studies tends to be around eighty 85% or so, maybe pushing 90, rarely though, hitting in the 90s, but somewhere in the 80s, and that our sensitivity tends to be much lower than firearms, where it's in the 60s often, maybe 70s, where we have a lot more inconclusives towards the identification, same source conclusions. It's flipped for fingerprints. It, it just sounds like they have a different philosophy when it comes to exclusions that the class characteristic aspect and some of these other things sounds like it's just different for fingerprints yeah. that, you know, Eric, you know, you are a big advocate of, of excluding on level two details, strong level two details. And for them, it sounds like, you know, excluding a level one is bread and butter all the time. Right. Like where, where I, I would insist on having level one and two, they would be okay with either, either or. So is is part of it? Do some examiners prescribe to this this some sort of rule where they won't exclude if um, the uh, the caliber and other class characteristics are the same? Hmm. Yes, They're famously the FBI um, uh, laboratory. Uh, if there is same class, they will not exclude on differences of individual. And that could be a source of some of the the higher level of inconclusives for, for, uh, for those different source comparisons as well. Definitely. I, and I suspect some other laboratories, um, have a similar rule. Other lab, there are laboratories that I know of that will not exclude on individual differences of individual unless they have the firearm to examine. So they can examine mm. the firearm for alteration to make sure there's no alteration occurring that would account for those differences. Man, I can <laughs> I know we could go on forever and we're, it's, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Let me, let me go out with a nice compliment here for, for you guys. Uh, I, in, in studying the different forensic disciplines, I have always been impressed probably more so than any other discipline than for, with firearms, uh, particularly because of the length of training and the depth of knowledge that your firearms slash tool arms, tool arms slash tool mark examiner has to go through the the number of weapons you have to be familiar with the number of different processes manufacturing issues 
I, I was always impressed at the level of depth. I mean, honestly, when it comes to fingerprints, it's just fingers and palms and maybe toes. We have a pretty set box that we stay within. And it's just it's so amazing what you guys learn in, you know, basically three years of training to kind of get up to speed on all the possible kinds of tests. Plus, beyond just source determination, all the activity level tests that you do, you know, shooting, shooter position, shooting reconstruction, distance determination, like all that stuff, functionality. It's really pretty incredible. I've always been impressed with the firearms examiner and what you guys go through to get there. Thanks, Alan. I, I appreciate you acknowledging that, you know, we in OSAC, we um, produced their own process map that actually just went up on the OSAC webpage. And one of the NIST people had a very similar comment. He said, you know, our, our process map is this huge mess of like 28 <laughs> PDF. It's, it, it's an incredible document. The people that put it together, like did, I think you did a fantastic job, but when the NIST people said like, you guys, you have to publish it because people have no idea how much work goes into your, your day-to-day casework. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting perspective. <laughs> Yeah, it, it really is. It, it's so true. And it's there's a good reason why you have probably the longest training period to get up to speed, you know, to, to do casework. Yeah, it took me six months to become a forensic biologist and two and a half years to be a firearm examiner. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. Incredible. All right, Glenn, I, I think I think we got to cut it off because we're, we're so long and uh, but and we could we could really just go on all, all night if we don't if we don't stop now. Um very true. So, Very true. Uh, Todd, thank you so much. Just tremendous thank you for for joining us here for this this extra long episode. And uh, and you know, again, anytime that something new comes up in the firearms discipline, uh, and you want to talk about it, feel free to reach out, and, uh, and you know, we'll find a spot to uh, to get you on the show. Well, thanks, uh, Glenn and Eric, for having me on. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh i hope it's okay if i pop into a happy hour every once in a while absolutely, absolutely. we got statistics <laughs> to talk about while we drink uh glenn any things you want to mention here before we close out the show or do you want to do the, the fast close well i'll just still still continue to tell listeners if you're interested in webinars still doing webinars in fact added a bunch of new ones through the summer you know, here we are still in the middle of COVID, so webinars are going strong. And I suspect we'll still even have webinars going even after things eventually get sure. back to back to some kind of normal. So go check out Evolve Forensics. That's evolveforensics.com. That's Alice White's company and website. And you can find a number of webinars that I'm teaching uh, on the OSAC inclusion scale on various kinds of specificity issues and how to measure them and use statistical tools and a recent one on bloody fingerprints, which I really do enjoy teaching that one. I think examiners um, could benefit a lot from learning about how different blood is as a recording medium. It's not the same as your regular residue. Yes, Eric. Bloody, bloody fingerprints. fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. I just can't help myself. You can't. No, and you can't. Uh, same thing for yeah. me. Um, if you are interested in uh, in exclusion training, um, I'm I'm ramping that back up, and uh, you'll see some more information coming out here soon uh, about uh, how that might be available. You know, for the the short term, you know, forty hour class uh, provided remotely, you know, over you know over the uh, the internet, uh, and then eventually here. Again, like you said, Glenn, once things return to normal uh, in person. 
so you can reach out to me uh, if you want some more information on that. Uh, and also FIG, the FIG email group, the fingerprint interest group, uh, started by Charlie Parker and continued by Sandy Siegel. Um, we're going to be taking over for Sandy and helping her, uh, continue that forward. Uh, so if you are uh, part of that, uh, that email chain, you probably in a few weeks ago saw an email from Sandy talking about how she's transferring over uh, your responsibilities for this group to to us. So Glenn and I have recruited uh, Becca, our our twi- tweeter uh, in charge, um, uh, to to help run that. So you'll start to see uh, some messages come out through uh, to your emails again from us instead. And uh, we'll provide here very soon information if you're not a part of that email group on how to sign up. And we plan to give you updates, news stories, training opportunities, whatever sort of fingerprint news is out there delivered, hopefully weekly or so to the community. All right. So, Glenn, the anagram, I I know that the conversation was super interesting, so I'm not sure how much time you had to spend on trying to decipher this, but uh, did you make it through? No, I I got it pretty early, Um, although I will say that I got half of it right away and then... (laughs) And then literally, as I was trying to figure out the second half of it, it's two words. When I got to the second half, like, what is this word? And then you said it like (laughs) right then. And I went, oh, all right. (laughs) That's what that is. So it was, you didn't even know. Well, there you go. That's the way, that's the way it should be. Not even knowing that you helped somebody. So filmmaker orator turns into. Firearm toolmark. All right. So if you want to reach out to us, Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, or eric at rayforensics.com. And if you want to reach out to Todd with any questions about firearms, you can also you know email me or Glenn, and we'll pass the email along to uh, to Todd. All right, so the rest of the, the goodbye stuff, you can go to the website, devloopodcast.com. Uh, that has the links to our social media stuff and also to our store with some merchandise. And you can find us every week on SoundCloud, on, on iTunes, or on Stitcher. And uh, the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not necessarily anyone that they work for. So with that, thanks, everyone, and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and try to stay sane out there. Goodbye. Thanks for having me on.